king of Israel. Let's stand together and sing. today in spirit and in truth. We know you give us the capacity to do that. We ask for that, Lord, today, that we would be your servants, your worshipers, those who would bow down in our hearts and worship you in spirit and in truth. 
Lord, we, we pray as we go through our fourth and fifth lighting of the Advent candle, as we go through the message that you came to save, as we go through all these aspects of, of worship today, Lord, may each and every element of worship cause us just to bury a little bit deeper that truth that Jesus saves in our hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we invite you to take one of these uh, connection cards and uh, maybe you're worshiping with us for the first or second time. We would love to know who you are. So uh, please fill that out and turn that into the offering plate at the end of the service. Uh, Also, for the rest of us, there's an opportunity to put down prayer requests. If you're interested in what does it mean to be baptized, what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ, uh, check those boxes and we will be sure and get uh, to you as quickly as we can. Um, Also, I just want to take a moment to say, my goodness, we have had a busy couple of weeks here at First Baptist Church in the last couple of times, last couple of weeks in December. Giving Christmas, we've had a bunch of upward things happening. The biggest season ever is going to start in January. And for all of those who helped, and I think you can see the group picture up there to Back to Bethlehem, there are over 300 of you that either in costume or behind the scenes helped. God bless you. Thank you so much for serving the Lord this way. And, and, and due to your uh, giving, uh, we were able, God allowed us, to uh, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with over 2,000 souls. And so, praise the Lord. Well, let's continue to worship with this great reminder that He is not only a baby in a manger, He shall reign forevermore.
may be seated. We're going to ask the strikers to come up and share with us Advent reading number four. This morning we light the fourth candle, the candle of good news. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came into the world to save his people from their sins. And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This great joy comes through his perfect sacrifice on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins. There is no greater good news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And on the end of the eighth day, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for the inexpressible gift that was given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we not skip over this Christmas season without understanding that we live in a sacred time and day that we have the good news that Jesus Christ has come. Thank you, Father, for all that you have given to us. Lord, help us to share that good news with our neighbors, co-workers, family, and friends this Christmas season. For it is in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. I had the distinct privilege this week of watching my favorite show on TV, The Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> and as I was watching it, I was just amazed at how things proceeded. I'd never noticed this before. I'd seen the episode where, if you remember, Barney and Andy are 
they're, going, they're perusing through files, old cases, and they pull out one that was unsolved. It was, I think Floyd had punched Foley in the nose. And by the end of the show, everyone has gotten punched in the nose, all because of Barney, of course. But it's fascinating. The show starts off with them humming a tune. And they hum this tune. Of course, you know, I, I'm quickly on it, and I'm like, what would it be like today if we heard this particular tune on the screen? And, of course, then we end up hearing what it actually is. But as they're humming the tune, they work a little while on the files, and then they talk a little while, and then they come back, and they begin to hum it again. And Barney has no idea the name of the song. He's just going along with Andy with the tune. And he says, Barney looks at Andy and says, what tune is that song from? And Andy says, sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I was struck by that. I'm like, man. You know the song, right? There is a fountain filled with blood. Now, they didn't go into that part. But still, just unbelievable to hear that from Andy's lips. That if you're plunged beneath that flood, you lose all your guilty stains. We could use metaphors. Metaphorically, we could say that everybody's life is a song. Could we not? Some people's lives are like a funeral dirge. And I don't really particularly like being around you if it's like that. Others say or would think their life is more like an old blues song. Others may be an upbeat, superficial kids song, which I'm not a real big fan of either. But still others may have the sweet melody of John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or you readily identify with sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Paul's life was like a song. Better yet, Paul's life was a song that we might call a doxology. A doxology is a song that we sing about our God, or the words that we say about Him that contain ascriptions of praise to God for who He is. It's a song that magnifies the glory of the grace of God. Let me show you one of those. Just look into a window of this text this morning before we partake of our Lord's Supper. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. So, Today, the sermon title is Christ Jesus Came Into the World to Save Sinners, which fits with the fourth candle of the good news, and then we will light the Christ candle. I will attempt to do that before we take the Lord's Supper. And, of course, I find a verse of Scripture that is relevant for that in verse 17 for sure. As a matter of fact, the whole text is. But listen, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful Appointing me to his service. Now note this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. Persecutor. And insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all, of full acceptance. Note the words, folks. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's not enough, which is unbelievable. Here's how Paul identifies himself, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To him, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's life was like a doxology. We might say that in many texts like this, Paul has a guitar and there are many strings that he's plucking, uh, picking, what do you, whatever. What do you call it? There are at least six strings in this doxology on his guitar. We're not going to look at all those strings. The very first one is just thanksgiving. We all are to be so thankful for the grace of God. Notice the pickup in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, that's what we're dealing with, right? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then when that's in his mind, he begins to think first about his need for grace. That's really what this is about, right? He thinks of his need for grace, and then that, of course, leads to the greatness of God's incredible grace. And why did he need grace? Look at the text. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, he he enumerates what he was. Persecutor, insolent opponent. Some translations will say violent aggressor. So Paul, even though he's an eminent apostle, Never forgets his imminent need for the grace of God in his life. So he spells out the magnitude of his own sinfulness before God, which that actually serves as the black back, the black back drop to the glory of the grace of God. So he's a blasphemer. If you turn over to Acts chapter 26, he gives a little bit of a description of what this looked like in his own life. Here is Paul before Agrippa, chapter 26. In the book of Acts, which is volume 2 of a two-part series, right? Luke, Acts. Luke wrote both of them. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In in other words, remember, as a Hebrew, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought he was honoring God by what he was doing. But in fact, he was ignorant and walked in unbelief. But here's what it says. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in the prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Not only was he a blasphemer, he tried to get others to blaspheme the Lord. And in raging fury... Against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So, he was hostile toward the things of the Lord. He was hostile to the name of Jesus. And just think of Paul's writings later. The name that is above every name. The precious name of Jesus. And before Christ, he was an insolent instigator. He was an agitator against the gospel. And all that slander that had spewed forth out of him was indeed against Christ. He was also a persecutor. When they performed their mock trials, he said, I was standing right there voting or putting my vote that they should be put to death. So it seems clear that in Paul's subsequent new creation life, he never forgot the faces of those that he persecuted. 
He never forgot what it was to be like, what it was like to be lost in sin. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, do you think that Stephen's picture was firmly fixed in the mind of Paul after he became a believer? I'm sure he had the faces of the children, wherein the scripture says he actually ripped them away from their moms and dads, and they were taken off to prison, and their children were left behind. I'm sure that was indelibly etched in his mind. On three different occasions, when Paul is giving his defense of his faith in the book of Acts alone, he never fails to cite the words that Jesus proclaimed to him in Acts 9, 4 through 5. Jesus said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul knew that when he persecuted the people of God, he was in fact persecuting who? He was in fact persecuting Christ. There's no doubt that his memories laid heavy on his heart and mind. The last word is not attractive at all. The NASB says a violent aggressor. The ESV says an insolent opponent. If you look in extra biblical Greek language written at the time of this particular writing of the book of uh, 1 Timothy, it explains this term as outrageous disregard for other men's rights. That kind of sounds like the U.S., right? But think about this. We look at our people today in our society and when we look at them and they have no regard for human life, we see that as despicable. How can they just trample human life underfoot with no regard? So this very word means that he cared for no one but his own reputation. This was Paul's position. He cared for nothing except the falsity of what he thought he was doing, which was right, he thought, but actually it was wrong. Don't miss this. As Paul explains this black backdrop of his past life's story, he also knows as he's writing it that he's forgiven. He does. He was a forgiven blasphemer. He was a forgiven persecutor. He was a forgiven insolent opponent. But much like David, right? Paul could say, my sin is ever before me. Even though it is blotted out in the record of heaven. Aren't you thankful for that? Even though God has buried our sins in the sea of forgetfulness, even as he has cast them as far as the east is from the west, Paul could say, you know what I used to be, folks. You know what I used to be. Folks, I think it is healthy for us to remember what we used to be in our life song before Christ saved us. It's okay to say, I remember what my life used to be like, fill in the blank, right, of what your life used to be like. But we're not paralyzed by false guilt because the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt to those who are in Christ Jesus. He knew about the finished work of Christ. He knew that God Almighty had atoned for not one, not two, but all of his sins. And he could say in one particular place in Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. So I know what I was, Paul could say. I know what I did. I know I was a rotten person. But the glorious thing is that God has been so rich in his grace toward me a sinner. So when we remember what we were, we are also reminded of the greatness of God's grace. So look, folks, let's not minimize our sin, right? John Newton called himself a wretch. Is that appealing to us in the year 2021 in December? I don't know how appealing that is to the world at large, but John Newton did not minimize his sin. 
I think when we minimize sin, we actually end up minimizing the grace of our God. Because the Bible says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's a direct correlation between our perception of our own sins and our perception of the grace of Almighty God. Think of this. We dare not make grace less than amazing. It is amazing grace. Amazing grace came to us when we were dead rebels against God and against His Christ. Just like Paul. Watch how the text moves. But I receive mercy. Isn't that wonderful? To look at that text, think about the Lord's Supper, and hear those words. I received mercy. We need to be so thankful for that. God's justice demanded that I and you and Paul and everyone that ever lived deserved condemnation. Deserved condemnation and judgment. Yet God gave him mercy. Notice what the text says. Because of I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Now, does that mean for one moment that Paul said, because of my ignorance and unbelief, I was actually worthy of the gospel? No, that's not it at all. Ignorance and unbelief simply means that a person is actually salvageable when they admit it. Right? That's what this means. They put us in the position to be people who receive the mercy of God. Remember, Paul actually told Agrippa that he was actually serving God in his mind, thinking he had a clear conscience for doing what is actually right, But as he was hunting down believers, he thought he was doing God a favor. He could later say, once he was saved, about his own countrymen. That they have a zeal for God, but they do not do so according to knowledge. That's why God had to give him understanding. So they think that they can earn their own righteousness by hating Christians. Paul thought he could. He thought his countrymen could earn righteousness because he thinks he's doing God a favor. But in the end, it was ignorance. It all stems from unbelief. Watch this verse in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. Again, that's Paul using a a terminology and phrasing it in such a way that it was kind of hard for him to grab one Greek word that would explain the magnitude of the grace of God. So he takes several and he pushes them together. And it means his grace super abounded toward me. It was super abundant grace. Where there is great sin, thank the Lord there can be great grace. For us, this should be great news, should it not? For all of us. Uh, When this superabundant grace came to Paul, it gave him faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. When Paul was an object of grace on the road to Damascus, it was God himself who went in and changed Paul and gave him faith and love. What a contrast from opposition and hatred. To faith and love. Think about that folks. Only God can do that. Only God can take you from the place of opposition and hatred. To the place of faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only the grace of God alone that can do this. It is. It's only the grace of God. This talk about abundant grace leads Paul to one of the trustworthy or faithful sayings in the book of 1 Timothy. And you can track how Paul is teaching by these statements. Here's a trustworthy, faithful statement given to us. And this this one's an awesome one for Christmas, right? Here it is. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of of full acceptance that Christ Jesus 
came into the world. What do we call that? We call it the incarnation. It's what we're celebrating here at Christmas is that the Son of God came into this world and He gives it to us in reference of a trustworthy and faithful saying. What is this? It's going back to verse 11. It is the blessed gospel of God that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Here's the question. Where did Paul ever get this idea? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, perhaps he heard the oral presentation of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, say it, a ransom for many. Perhaps he's uh, in the uh, oral tradition of Luke, given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is the author of Acts, of course. Luke says, for the Son of Man came to seek. Come on, folks, help me. And to save that which was lost. That is Luke 19.10. Paul here gives us the encapsulation of the entire gospel message. It is the gospel of grace. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When I was growing up, people didn't need this word save to be defined as much as they need it to be today. Forty years ago, if you saw a sign, if you heard Andy say, sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all the guilty stains. You didn't Maybe you didn't understand all of it, even if you were not a churchgoer, but something kind of stuck in your mind that, you know, I might be a sinner and I might need to be plunged beneath that flood. But today, it's not the case, I don't think. No. Now, people wonder why God would save at all rather than invest. Y'all missed that, right? Because they have no idea what save means. Why would God save and not invest? Why would he not make more out of his product or whatever? They don't understand at all that it has to do with us that needs to be saved. The text says he came to save sinners. What is salvation? Is that something good to ask? When it says in the text, here's a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think it's a good question to ask what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? If Christmas is Christ coming into the world to save sinners, certainly we need to know what it means to be saved. Soterios, or the terminology of save, actually means to be rescued from danger. We can broaden that according to the Bible. It means to be delivered from the penalty of sin. That's what saved means. Let's give a few more things. It is to be, be delivered from the very power of sin. It won't have dominion over me anymore. Uh, when you yield your instruments of right, to righteousness and the Lord, it is to be freed from the wrath of God. I, I feel like I need to go back and start over to give you the magnitude of what it means to be saved. Rescued from danger. Delivered from the penalty of sin. Delivered from the power of sin. It is to be freed from the wrath of God. It is to have a righteousness not of our own imputed to us. And it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It means to be freed from the power of sin and to have a relationship with God. Not just to get out of hell free card. Not just to say, well, I'm going to escape hell and I'm all good. No, there's no salvation that's not a relationship salvation. That he's your personal savior. Right? That he's your shepherd. Like we learn out of Psalm 23 when there's 17 personal pronouns. He is my shepherd. 
right? It's personal. To be saved means to have fellowship with God. It's more than just getting up on Sunday morning and giving your, uh, hitting your responsibility mark. Like it's, you can't see church like and worship to God like you see a sports event. Or you're taking your children to a sports event to, to do your responsibilities. Now, folks, that's not the way you see your worship to the Lord. There is genuine fellowship with Him. And you can't imagine what life would be like if you didn't sense His presence in your life. That's what it means to be saved. You have fellowship with God. To be saved means we have a love for God. You say you love me and don't keep my commandments? Jesus says, you don't love my Father. If you love Him... It will be manifested in your life. To be saved means we have eternal life with God. That's not just futuristic. That's now. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life now. To be saved means we will not have to undergo the torments of eternal punishment in hell. To be saved means that we get to enjoy the bliss of heaven forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that word saved. No amens? Yeah, I don't know about you, that may sound a little bit old-fashioned, but I like saying, I've been saved. Uh, there was a fellow that was in my church in South Georgia, Natalie will, remember, Natalie will remember this, his name was Osi Graham. I don't even know if Brother Osi's living, but anytime he'd, you'd walk up and say, how you doing, Brother Osi? He'd say, saved. He kind of annoyed you sometimes when you're having a bad day, but you know, the fact of the matter is, that sticks in your mind, saved. I've been saved. Here's the catch in this text. This great revelation is for sinners only. The Bible says Christ Jesus came to save sinners. So folks, here's the deal. The great revelation is for sinners only. When I was going to middle school and high school, kids wore these very cool jackets with an emblem on them. And everybody had to have one. Some of you are way too young. You kids are like, what, what's the next fad? Some kind of thing you wear on your wrist or around your head or what? Well, for us, it was a coat. And on the, right over here, it said members only. <laughs> and look at, let me tell you, I had a leather members only. I mean, I actually let Natalie wear it when we were dating. Her mama got mad and said, give that jacket back to that boy. <laughs> but the fact is, this business about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save only applies to sinners. Only sinners. And if you're a sinner today, there's wonderful hope. However, if you sit here and think to yourself, well, I hold down a good job. I don't cheat on my spouse. I'm a pretty good parent. I don't get, I don't get into singing a song such as A Worm As I or a wretch like me, I'm not really identified as that S word, sin. If you refuse to believe that you fit into that category, verse 15 is not for you. He came for sinners. If you continue to believe in your own self-righteousness and pride that you can stand before God and get in on your own merits, this verse is not for you. And here Paul adds an astonishing statement. Perhaps he's the greatest Christian who ever lived. And he gives an astonishing statement. Look at it. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
the old KJV. I still like it. This is the way I memorized it when I was a kid. I am chief. I'm the chief of sinners. What an astonishing thing to say. I'm the foremost sinner. He doesn't use the past tense in the verb here. He uses the present tense. And I know what this means to me. It's a blessing to know that if God could save Paul, he could save me. Right? God, some of us think, God would never save me. I've hated him. I can identify with Paul. I've turned against him. I've fought against God at every point of my life. Some of you think you're beyond the mercy of God. Hear this. God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him the chief missionary in the church. And why did he do it? To show his patience that he loves, that he beckons sinners to believe in him for eternal life. No matter what you, who you are, what you have done, these words are worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here's what God's grace does. When the grace of God comes to us through Christ Jesus, it levels us. Doesn't it? It is grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace shows us that we are in fact sinners. And if you've tasted of the grace of God, you can join Paul in saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we can add in. And I'm the biggest one. Right? Why? Because you understand the nature of grace because you, you're not minimizing the nature. As a matter of fact, even as a believer, the Bible says if you deny that you have sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. First John. We can't begin to ever let this come out of our mouth. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And we're tempted to think that sometimes. Grace puts us within a view of ourselves in which we have no false perception. Grace comes to us. And it gives us complete satisfaction in Jesus and the gospel alone. Grace comes to us and does this. Here's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the biggest one. Think of this. You may say, I had a broken life. I had a sinful life. But there was a fix for it. (laughs) And the fix is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I don't know how y'all feel this morning, but I'm completely content and satisfied because I know it's true. I'm satisfied in it. So I invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Verse 4 of there is a fountain filled with blood is a testimony verse. William Cooper knew this. Ever since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I'm not going to keep singing the verse, the chorus, because I'm up too high, all right? But it's redeeming love that is our theme. What is that your theme this morning? I mean, we're looking at the Lord's table, which is a reminder, not of our guilt, but of the celebration that we've been freed from our sins. That's what this is for. How about that this morning? Our choir is going to sing a pretty good song, in my opinion, called Jesus Saves.
I want you to listen to this song before the Lord. And then here's what we're praying for. Pray for the person on your left and right. And when they're finished with this song, we're going to have an invitation before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay, let's listen to our choir. We've done this several times before. You probably know it. So we certainly invite you to sing it with us.
heads bowed and eyes closed, that this sermon, the song, is to remind you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you may feel like I'm, I'm, I'm worse than the chief of sinners. God's grace can still reach you. Where sin abounded. What does this mean? I know sin is great. We get that. But our God has greater grace than you have sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Believe in the Lord Jesus. We're going to sing a song. You've got that opportunity. The gospel is clearly before you today. Would you believe in Christ? Would you trust him? Let's sing together. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is Paul writing to a pretty troubled church that were still, it was still a triumphant church, but here's what Paul would say to them about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to ask our servers to come forward. If they would, and prepare us for the Lord's Supper. So here is the reminder in the text that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare, listen to the word. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, we're continuing this ordinance today, right? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we we think about this today. It's a look back. To what Jesus Christ actually did for us in coming to save sinners like us. And then we look around at one another. Why? Because we're a body. And uh, if you don't know Christ as Lord, we, 
it's better you don't partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a family meal. This is the, a meal for people who have been redeemed by the Lamb. They're, they know what it's like to be a sinner and to be saved, right, in, in reference to 1 Timothy. So we invite you, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. And just a reminder that we are proclaiming his death until he comes. All right, I want to ask our service to come forward. Brother Chris and, and our, our servants here in the church, we appreciate every one of you. I'm going to do a combined prayer today over the blessing of the bread and the cup uh, for the sake of time. But I hope you commune with the Lord during this and also with one another. Because if you read on down in 1 Corinthians, it reminds us that there's an examination of our own heart that we ought to have before we partake of it. Right? Paul would remind them in Corinth that some of you are necros, dead. Some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you are deceased because of not discerning the body of the Lord. That's a pretty serious thing. So I'm encouraging you to think and to pray. Now, it's a celebration, amen, that we've been forgiven. But it's hard to celebrate when there's unconfessed sin between you and a brother. Or there's something going on in your life in fellowship with Christ or with one another. So we encourage you to do that. We don't want to be guilty of not telling you the truth. And that's the truth. Amen. All right, let's pray. Great God, uh, you came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we're reminded, Lord, I think we need to read this passage back to you and each other. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to think about your body that was broken. The ultimate sacrifice. Not the blood of just anybody. The infinite blood of the Son of God. Who atoned for our sins. And then Lord, the ratification of the new covenant in your blood. For us. For the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.
there's certainly a message in everyone being served because the Son of God did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus reminded them, as often as you partake this bread, you do so in remembrance of me. The Bible says he also took the cup and gave it to his disciples and reminded them that it was the new covenant in his blood and that he would not partake of it again until he partook of it in the kingdom which was to come. God be the glory. Let's stand.
Tell me the story, most precious. See that one line? Love paid the ransom for me. We don't believe that this is the literal blood of Jesus. We don't believe in transubstantiation, which means it is literally the blood and body of Christ. We don't believe that. We don't believe in consubstantiation, which means that as you drink it, it becomes the blood. We don't believe that. We do believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. And it was the precious blood of Christ that makes the sacrifice efficacious. Why? Because he's the eternal son of God who shed his blood. He was the sacrifice. He didn't have to have anybody pay for his sins. Why? Because he was sinless. As our great high priest, he didn't stop before he went into the Holy of Holies so that his sins could be forgiven like the high priest of old. He himself was our sacrificial lamb. He was sinless and paid the penalty in full. So as you drink this, remember that you are forgiven by the infinite value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. To God be the glory. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. God bless you. I, I love and appreciate our church family. It's an honor and privilege to be one of your pastors. And I know all of our guys would say that. And all of the servants of the Lord. And we hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I get to squeeze my grandbabies this coming weekend. <laughs> yep. And uh, all of us are going to try to make our way down on Saturday, Sunday. Brother Chris Thixton will be preaching next Sunday. I never have to worry when I leave this church about the word being preached. Amen. And that's true for our staff. And Chris will do a wonderful job. He's preaching, I think, out of Philippians 2. Uh, I hope I didn't let the cat out and he changed his sermon, which sometimes that happens with all of us. But he'll be preaching next week. Please come and support if you're in town. If you're out of town, we get it. But uh, we appreciate you so much. And, and God has blessed us as a church. Amen. So uh, I look forward to seeing you all in the new year. Right? See you in 2022. All right? And I'll be around all week, and I think most of our staff will be if you need anything. I plan on making some visits this week when I have a little, I'm not preparing sermons all week. So if you want to visit from me, call me. I'll come see you. All right? Just make sure you got something cooked for me when I get there. All right? All right. God bless you. Before we go today, let's, uh, let's stand in one more candle. The most important is going to be lit before Christmas that reminds us that this candle never, ever ever goes out. Amen. He shall reign forevermore. And he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. And he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. God bless. Merry Christmas.